Hello and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Andy Stone. The energy industry increasingly relies on information technology to manage everything from customer accounts to pipeline systems and complex smart grids. But the embrace of communications technology has exposed the industry to cybersecurity threats. Recent cyber attacks have succeeded in stealing or destroying the data of major oil companies, while the interconnected nature of our electric grid opens the possibility that a well-coordinated attack could take out part of the nation's electricity supply. The industry is awakened to threats, but it's, of course, no easy task to protect a sprawling electric grid or a pipeline network from nimble cyber terrorists. Our guest today has led cybersecurity efforts in government and industry. Bill Hederman is a senior fellow at the Climate Center and executive advisor to a data security company, Agile PQ, where he consults to energy companies on cybersecurity issues. Until 2016, he was a senior advisor to the Secretary of the U.S. Department of Energy. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andy. Uh, just to get started, could you give us some background on your involvement with cybersecurity issues and a view into what cybersecurity is? particularly within the context of the energy industry? So uh, cybersecurity is the element of security needed by the energy industry to protect itself from attacks that would come not through the wires of the grid or the pipes of the oil or gas networks, but through the wires for communication, either telecommunication or, or information technology. And uh, it's a threat that has been growing rapidly in the last couple of years. Uh, is there a specific uh, issue that brings this to light now, technology issue that, that cybersecurity has, has come to the fore? Well, you know, um, as you mentioned, I finished up at DOE in uh, July of this year. And in one of my last assignments, I was in country in Ukraine. And of course, when you're in a uh, environment like that where you know that you're being tapped at all times, you're very uh, aware and careful about what you're doing with your computer, with your uh, cell phone, etc. But when you're at home and you're comfortable, uh, you probably are taking risks that uh, you, sh you really should not be doing. Uh, the, you know, the threat is real and imminent. In the early days, it was mostly like vandalism of, uh, of uh, amateur hackers just trying to see what they could do. It started to grow via organized crime who were after primarily credit information and maybe intellectual property that they could resell. But now it's a matter with nation-state levels of hostile activity. And while it's not leading to blackouts, we see the trail of attacks being successful and penetrating systems. That means you need to go and find out what's in there and make sure uh, you get it out and clean it. And then also, you know, uh, chains as strong as the weakest link. The weakest link here we can see is not necessarily the technology. It's the human factor. Uh, people opening something they shouldn't open, linking to something that they shouldn't be linking to. And so the dilemma, at, you know, as a uh, we see it is how do you keep the mission of an organization in place so they can do their business but do it without opening itself constantly to these potential attacks? 
Now, there's been a lot of focus on cybersecurity in recent years. We've seen uh, major retail chain stores in the United States uh, under attack for credit card data, these types of things. How is this specifically different or the same when you're looking at cybersecurity between a retail industry, a credit card supplier, and and what's going on with oil and gas or, or the electric grid? Okay, so... Uh, we have seen we've seen attacks on retail companies largely about credit information, as you said. Financial institutions have seen attempts at attacks, but for the most part, financial institutions knew they would be attacked, and their security is at a different level. The energy companies. Uh, if you will, we're thinking about normal industrial strength security, but uh, what we're seeing, and you know, in in the physical world, we saw this in uh, in warfare over the last couple of decades that taking out power generation facilities, et cetera, early was an important thing to do. Well, now as we look at the potential for uh, hostilities in a whole different space, and literally there is a cyberspace command now in all the major powers, uh, the the battleground is being laid out now. And so uh, when somebody has a successful entry, if you will, they're leaving a minefield behind, but we have to go and find it and take up those mines. But the attacks aren't happening there because the U.S. has stated that it would be viewed as an act of war to attack and take out things like our grid. So probably the brashest thing we've seen along those lines was the attack on a small dam in New York State so far via cyber attack. Um, Who are the aggressors? specifically when we're talking about cyber terrorism on the energy industry? Okay, so um, I don't use the term cyber terrorism. It's, to me, it's just cyber hostility. And um, this is more than terrorism. It's, it's geopolitical maneuvering. There's no public solid evidence. There's lots of indicators about who's involved. Uh, Ukraine has publicly accused Russia of the attacks that took out a quarter of a million people on their system. Uh, There have been claims of evidence on other parties as well. But the evidence in in the cyber world is difficult to come by. And when you when you do have information on it, it's usually going to stay classified because those methods and means of figuring that stuff out needs to stay quiet. How do these attackers break into a network, and what are the tools that they're using? One of the main ways is a company is going to have a firewall, an agency is going to have a firewall. The best way to get through the firewall is to convince the system that you belong on the on the safe side of the firewall. So that generally happens through what are called phishing expeditions, which is notes are sent to people. Uh, they're sent in a way that invites them to click it open and We all get many of these that we know are bogus and we just toss them. 
These are the phishing emails that come into your inbox. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes all you have to do is open it and you can get infected if it's a really advanced form of attack. Others you'll need to click into some specific attachment or something. So uh, people need to be alert on this. And there's actually a debate now. You know, in the past how we've addressed this is as uh, sites were identified as sources of problems, they would be put on a blacklist and you prohibited them. But now companies that deal primarily with issues that need serious, serious protection, they talk about whitelisting, which is a company has to be approved or a site has to be approved or you may not link to it from being inside the firewall. And of course, even as you do that, something could have infected that whitelisted site. And so... um, It will be much more difficult to conduct business in a natural way with whitelisting techniques. But I think some organizations are heading that way because just the volume and sophistication of the attacks has reached a point where uh, it's prudent to take a different approach. Okay, so so, uh, you you take an electric utility, for example, or something quite different. You take a, a pipeline company. And somebody breaches their uh, system, their enterprise uh, information system. What does that uh, breach then lead to? What are the targets uh, within that company that the person or organization that's doing the attack hope to get access to? And then what might they want to do with that? Okay, let me back up a little bit first, which is to to look at... How did an electric utility get so linked into the Internet, if you will? Mm -hmm. Because, one, it's important to realize that people who built the Internet were seeking to create easy access and encourage information sharing. It was inconceivable at those moments back in the ancient 1990s that the world would get to be this kind of neighborhood. And so uh, it was intentionally built to be easy to share and look at things. Now that's a problem. And ironically, as as the uh, grid moved in major parts to become open access, federal authorities were encouraging people, well, don't use your own little private built electronic bulletin board to share information. Use the Internet. It's there. Uh, it's a great device for sharing in an open access sort of way. So the grid uh, was encouraged to move in that direction. Now as they need to pull back, there are active measures that could be taken to improve security, and there are restrictions it could be putting in place. And uh, they have to get their regulators to approve all of this. And there's even an issue around the talent to assess whether measures are appropriate and effective and so forth. And the tradition of the cat and mouse game with the regulated utility and the regulator is that utility proposes more than it needs because it expects to be cut back some. And so the regulator looks and says, well, how are they gold plating this here? And we got to make sure that they only do what's absolutely necessary and cost effective. With pipelines, it's different because there, if you will, is a more inherent uh, physical nature. Uh, In fact, 
there are many a pipeline where the valves still require somebody to drive out in a pickup truck and manually turn the valve. They feel more complacent here. But the reality is I've heard a CEO say, I asked my guys how much they're connected to the Internet. They say not at all. I ask two or three questions, and I learn Mm -hmm. that when they have a problem with a piece of equipment, they call the support contractor, and they do the work over the phone. So they're using the Internet then Mm -hmm. to uh, – fix things. So they are exposed. So uh, both pipelines and the electric grid have vulnerabilities here. Uh, The electric ones are probably more instantaneous, but the pipeline needs to be concerned too, both for themselves and also in the gas pipeline being an inherent part of serving the electric grid. Can can you um, uh, illustrate a little bit what might uh, an attack on the electric grid look like? You know, to what extent could the grid be uh, incapacitated or, you know, what, what specific infrastructure would somebody target to actually create a problem? So the Idaho National Energy Lab did a test to see if they could cause physical harm. And they did it more in a way of a demonstration because they knew they could. And they put on a uh, turbine and they attacked it as if they were a hostile force. And basically they... uh, sped it up far outside of its uh, normal uh, requirements, and I believe they also cut off the oil supply. And so basically they had this equipment on fire in short order. Hmm. And it was a kind of damage that was not – they could turn it off and fix it. Things had melted. So pretty long-term repair operation. So uh, the other thing about a lot of this equipment is it's – somewhat standard. And so if you send in a virus or malware that's going to hunt to destroy a certain piece of equipment, they can find it at every facility, whether it's at every generation facility or something at a transformer substation. They can find it and get there and the attack can even be coordinated, perhaps, and take stuff out. Uh, if you look at the pattern in the attack in Ukraine, there was also follow-up uh, denial-of-service attack, which was basically overloading the circuitry to inbound uh, control room that was trying to figure out what was going on. And Customers could not call in and report the situation on their part of the system. So uh, it's typically a few levels. You know, the first one is the pre-planning and the pre-positioning. The second is the initiation. The third is trying to respond to what went wrong and knowing what's wrong. And then the fourth is the recovery. We're talking about the cybersecurity threat to America's energy sector with Bill Hederman, senior fellow at the Climate Center and former senior advisor to the secretary of the U.S. Department of Energy. This is all very, um, it sounds kind of James Bond, (laughs) if I may say, that potentially somebody from far away could infiltrate the system, uh, plant some virus or whatever it may be that would actually make the system go down. Um, What, you know, how would you judge the actual threat at this point? How much danger is there that there could be a major attack 
through through the grid. Well, so, you know, that's a tough question. I don't want to create a sense of panic, but, I mean, there, there should be a sense of alarm. The activity that's hostile is real and going on as we speak. Uh, there's evidence of the attacks uh, in terms of attempts for uh, for unauthorized entry and and of success in some unauthorized entry. We know from the Ukraine experience what a basic attack will look like, and it was successful. And Ukraine's a pretty sophisticated technological country. So uh, this was not a trivial effort. And, uh, you know, we within the U.S. know some of, we know what we can do too. And the sense is that all the major countries have the potential to be pretty effective on offense. Defense has proven much more challenging, and the defense will have to be ongoing, and it will be something that the threats are always evolving, and so the defense is always going to have to be both vigilant and evolving as well. There are some promising developments, and you know the U.S. just has an amazing ability to create new options, if you will. And uh, you know, some of those involve uh, technologies that really could leap forward. And they may not solve the whole problem, but they may be able to provide protection for, for large shares of the defense perimeter, if you will. Yeah, just along the lines of what you just said, I, I heard somebody talk about this once at a conference, and they said that basically the uh, attackers are very nimble and they're changing constantly, whereas the grid, as you mentioned earlier, is something that's been up for decades. It's an old system, and these are these you know they're slow responding. Is there any way that a big established grid and the companies that run these grids, is there any way they can actually keep ahead of these very nimble attackers? So that's another uh, really packed question. Uh, let me unravel it a little bit because, one, I think one of the big problems here is it's there isn't a clear set of who's responsible for what and who has authority over what. I mean, a lot of these attack structures that we're talking about, things that normally a civilian would expect the federal government to do under – the defense of the nation. But the internet has created all these, if you will, direct passageways right down into individual companies, individual persons. And uh, it's almost the opposite of when President Eisenhower built the defense highways. This is almost the offense highways into us. And uh, so we've got to figure that out. And there's lots of activity at the Department of Defense, at the uh, FERC, and the and their NERC operation, which is the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, the DOE is involved through DHS on some of the uh, the collaborative efforts. The Edison Electric Institute is very active here. People are engaged. Uh, senior executives and utilities have gotten clearances so they could hear the more complete descriptions of what's going on. And then they, as respected colleagues, talk in a more broad way with others who may not get the details, but when they hear somebody didn't sleep one night, they they take it seriously. And so the community is forming. It's still mushy, if you will. It's not solidified. And there's this culture when you have, especially I think 
in the utility industry, when you've got a great deal of uncertainty, of you tend to herd, right? That if you stay in the group, well, then you weren't one of the laggards, and laggards get picked off and penalized. And if you're a leader, you might guess wrong, and you could get picked off as well. So people are tending to stay together and try to move together. That can be good, but we also do need some leaders to uh, to try different possibilities. And so far, it seems like that's being done through consensus formation. And and I think it's premature to go to that. It's really time for some companies to step up and, and try out some options because we need to see what could work here. And uh, my sense is that the regulators, the industry, and people who are prepared to support them could do more. But uh, but people have to step up and do it. And unfortunately, it's like most other fads. There are thousands of companies claiming to have magic bullets here. And uh, a lot of it is not magic bullets. It's blocking and tackling every day. But there are some potential advances here that I think could be a big help. And what we've got to do is strategically get them introduced and tested and so forth. In your view, if there were a government agency that would take the lead on this to kind of give guidance to industry on how to respond to this and the technologies that they need to to protect themselves, what would be the ideal uh, agency to, to take that lead? Uh, I might go to the FBI, uh, but DHS is probably the closest that's a realistic option. Homeland Security. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that uh, you know the the challenge here is that uh, this is very uh, specialized talent that you need for cybersecurity, and there aren't enough professionals in the field. Uh, we do have the uh, the positive element that I think our Professionals are extremely gifted in this area, but we need more of them. But until we get more, we have to get the people who have the insights to be able to share it. And we have to make sure it happens in a way that we know why we're trusting and listening to the people that are claiming expertise talking with us. And that's a real problem because lots of people can talk to talk here and what what's really important is that you can make things happen effectively overall how do you see this issue evolving over the coming years is it going to get worse will our ability to thwart uh potential attacks improve where are we going well it always depends but i'm hopeful that we can make progress i mean it's only been a couple of years in which the lights have gone on that, wow, this is serious. It's a real danger. We have to take action. And I think Americans have very deep resolve about things like this. We are not going to let ourselves be intimidated and threatened in this way. So we will step up to it, but we have to find a way to step up to it quickly and move forward because we the culture has already built up kind of this lackadaisical attitude about security and the internet, and it's not appropriate going forward. I think we've started to see that, you know, like how cyber issues arose in the recent presidential campaign and so forth. People are understanding, wow, a lot of stuff can happen here. It's not all good. So I think, you know, that's important. And um, I think we're making progress on that. And, and, in 
in America, I think when we recognize a problem, we tend to attack it pretty effectively. Got it. So this is actually very much a new issue and, and, and the awareness is still rising. Correct. Like, yep. Correct. Yep. Okay. Well, our guest today has been Bill Hederman, uh, visiting scholar at the Kleinman Center. Bill, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome, Andy. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to Energy Policy Now from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. You can get the latest energy and environment updates from our Twitter feed at Climate Energy. Keep up to date on the latest news, research, and events from the Climate Center by visiting our website, www.climateenergy.upenn.edu.